Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Uh, this morning, we have a special uh, treat. Pastor Robert Cunningham will be bringing us God's word this morning. Uh, he was our men's retreat speaker, and he survived. Uh, he'll, he might talk a little bit about that. But, um, but throughout the past two years, just been a very trying time for all of us, especially folks in, in leadership, no matter what sphere. And for me, uh, something that ministered to me deeply was Pastor Cunningham's podcast, Every Square Inch, which is listed there in the bulletin. Encourage you to check it out. Uh, just really good stuff. And so through that, uh, he's ministered to me, and that's why we invite him to come and speak at the men's retreat and come speak today. And so, Robert, thank you for coming and sharing God's word, brother. Uh, thank you so much for uh, your hospitality. This is this is truly. I, I, I sensed it uh, during the men's retreat, and I've I've sensed it this uh, this morning in the first service. Uh, this is a lovely community that I hope you do not uh, take for granted. This is this is something really special. Uh, at the at the men's retreat, I uh, I just took a video of the whole deal while they were singing and sent it to our a pastoral team back in Kentucky and just said, you know, this is how uh, presbyteries are supposed to function. Uh, it's, it's, really, it's really powerful. And, and you have a wonderful church and amazing pastor and family. Um, very thankful. Love Wisconsin. Um, I'm ready to go home. <laughs> I can only handle four days of being freezing. Uh, my request... I told the first service, my request is, could you give your pastor a slight raise? He just needs $5 more a month to get that thermostat to actually go up. His house is freezing. And I just like, can we just please, can you get a couple more degrees? So if, if you could just all pitch in and give them maybe five or 10 bucks a month so that they can not lounge around their house in winter gear and coats and use this amazing invention called a heater. All right, uh, so you all are in the Gospel of Mark, and uh, I'm going to pick up where you left off, I believe, in Mark chapter 4. This is verses 35 through uh, 41. We're going to do this the way my church does it. That's okay. Uh, I'll, I'll read the passage, and I will proclaim the word of the Lord, and you will say, thanks be to God. You go okay with that? Can we do that? All right. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And the other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, 
do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? The word of the Lord. Amen. Our God, we are indeed thankful for your word. And we, for the next 30 minutes, submit ourselves to its instruction. Have your way with us, Holy Spirit. Correct us, convict us. Shower us with your grace and mercy. Lord, this is a spiritual act. Um, If it were based on the faithfulness of the preacher, there would never be an effective sermon preached. But it's based upon the power of the Holy Spirit working in and through your word. And so have your way, Holy Spirit, among us, we pray. Through Christ, amen. So I went to seminary with... uh, Dan in St. Louis, Covenant Seminary in St. Louis, and um, one of the cool things about the city of St. Louis, we, I really loved living in St. Louis for four years. Um, it's a wonderful city, and, and one of the coolest things about it is it has a really nice zoo that is uh, free to the public, which served as a, uh, as a great form of entertainment for broke uh, seminarians with no money like myself. And so, uh, you know, if it was a nice day and we needed a brain break, from studying, my friends and I would just head over to the zoo, it's free, why not, and just walk around for a bit. But um, I noticed something interesting happening. Uh, the, the zoo started to get a little boring. Most zoos you have to pay to visit, so to go to it is a special event, but when it's free and you can just kind of slip in and out whenever you feel like it, the novelty kind of wears off. And then once the whole experience is kind of demystified, you really start noticing how strange the whole concept of a zoo really is. You have these majestic creatures caged up just sitting around so that you know, visitors can take selfies with them. That's their existence. And I always found the gorillas in particular to have a particularly depressing life. Uh, they had this gorilla house, which is just a building kind of faux cave looking with no sunlight, thick glass wall and just stuffed into this small space where just a bunch of gorillas hanging out with nothing to do except sit there while kids bang on their glass. I mean, these are, these are huge gorillas. Kids should not be able to get away with that. They should be getting mauled if they take on gorillas. And so the gorillas just sit there and take it. And I think the concept of a zoo is a good way to think of Christianity in our society. We live in what Leslie Newbegin refers to as a uh, post-Christian society. There's a difference between an unreached people group who have never known the gospel and a people group so used to the gospel that the gospel has become boring, domesticated. And that is us. A post-Christian society is a society where Jesus has been caged up, has been domesticated, where the scandalous claim of his incarnation is reduced down to sentimental songs over speakers of department stores during the busiest shopping time of the year, where the violence of his atoning cross is so commonplace that it's become our jewelry and tattoos, where his glorious resurrection has been kind of morphed down into a day of pastels and chocolate bunnies. Jesus is domesticated. Jesus is boring. 
Jesus is safe. Well, our pastor this morning is going to remind us what C.S. Lewis famously said in his Chronicles of Narnia. Who said anything about safe? He isn't safe. He's a lion. What we're going to do this morning is let Jesus out of his cage, so to speak, and in the end tremble with fear in his presence. I'm dividing our passage into two simple points that are there listed for you. We're going to look at irrational fear and then rational fear. Let's start with irrational fears that we have. Verse 37, and a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat, so the boat was already filling. Uh, So the description here is pretty straightforward, but I don't want us to miss the significance of this moment. They're out at sea. Uh, Unexpectedly, a storm rises up. It's so powerful that the waves are uh, crashing over the sides. The boat is filling up with water. It's on the verge of sinking. Translation, they're about to die. In other words, I think if we're going to be faithful to the passage, we need to delineate this trial from the normal trials of life. The disciples have troubles and concerns and anxieties in their lives just like the rest of us. But in our passage, they're staring down that singular moment we all fear their imminent death. That's not something that happens every day. So the point that I'm uh, belaboring here is that this passage is, is here to speak not to everyday trials of life, but those once-in-a-lifetime trials. Not the cloudy days, but quite literally the eye of the storm. Now, though we, relatively, we are relatively sheltered from moments like these in our society of uh, comfort and affluence, in reality, these moments are more, far more commonplace for humanity in general and God's people specifically. The Bible is a very desperate book, if you're familiar with it. It's written by and for a people suffering in the deepest possible ways. Famine, pestilence, persecution, enslavement, calamity, judgment. This is the pervasive norm of Scripture. Despite what the American church has been preaching over the past few decades, there is not much health, wealth, and prosperity that you will find in the Bible. And I think one of the blessings over the past few years in our society, as difficult as they have been, I think one of the blessings is that the facade of American comfort is unraveling all around us, and we are getting a taste of what most people throughout history have always known, that this fallen world is a scary and dangerous place. But regardless, even we in the affluent West cannot escape the reality of the fall. Eventually, we all must come face to face with what the disciples are facing in our passage. Perhaps some of you are right there in this moment. Maybe not facing physical death, though that might be the case in this room. Perhaps there is a terminal diagnosis in this room. But perhaps more of us even a proverbial death, a uh, a loneliness, a heartache, a depression, a tragedy, an abuse. Maybe you are walking the valley of the shadow of death as we speak. If not, you will. Every single one of us, like the disciples, we all must face the eye of the storm eventually. So let's watch what unfolds. Verse 38 says, but he, that is Jesus, was in the stern on the cushion. Did I do something wrong? No, okay. Asleep on the cushion. Here, here, the, the contrast is unmistakable. 
They are terrified. Jesus is napping. Amid their worst nightmare, Jesus is sound asleep. Now, there are two ways to interpret this, and the disciples interpret it wrongly. The rest of verse 38 says, And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? They interpret his sleep as indifference. Do you not care? We are perishing, and you're asleep? That's one way to interpret things, and this is typically how we interpret things as well. Behind our frustrations, our doubts, our accusations, our panic, lurking behind these emotions is a fundamental accusation toward God, do you not care? When our prayers seem to go unanswered, when our circumstances don't change for the better, when God is silent, our immediate interpretation of God's apparent inactivity is that he must not care. If he did, he would do something. So God being metaphorically asleep in the eye of your storm could be interpreted as lack of care. But there's another way to view Jesus asleep. He's asleep because he doesn't view this the way you view this. The storm doesn't worry him at all. So much so that he's going to catch a nap. The message here is that Jesus yawns at what terrifies us. Now, that may seem insensitive, especially in a moment of crisis, but understood rightly, it is incredibly reassuring. God is not surprised by what you fear. He isn't running around in panic wondering what can be done. He's okay because everything's going to be okay. Have you ever been on a flight I'm flying out here in a few hours, looking forward to dethawing my poor temperature. I'm flying out in a few hours. And if you've ever been on a flight, you know when a plane starts making weird noises or you hit some crazy turbulence, what do you do? You look at the flight attendant. And they are totally at ease walking around like this is normal. And you know that they understand things a lot better than you. So if they are okay, everything must be okay, despite what your inexperienced emotions might be telling you. What you don't want is a flight attendant running up and down the aisle shouting, we're all going to die. That would not be good. Well, we may view his nap as insensitive, but would you prefer, what would you prefer in the storm? A Lord who is at ease or a Lord freaking out along with the disciples? Listen, Jesus knows what he's doing. Do you really think it's a coincidence that he chooses, he chooses this moment to take a nap? Nowhere else in the Gospels do we see Jesus taking a nap. But it just so happens that in the moment of his disciples' greatest nightmare is the only time we are told that Jesus is asleep. I'm sure he was tired, but I think it's safe to assume he's making a point. He's trying to communicate something to them and to us, and it's simple. He has no fear of our greatest fears. This is why I call them irrational to us, they are rational. To Jesus, they are not. And so to all of us, I humbly, with all sensitivity and understanding to whatever you are facing, even still, I ask you to consider your trials from his perspective, not yours. I don't want to minimize suffering nor mock any pain, but I do want to challenge our perspective. Maybe God's apparent silence his apparent inactivity 
is not an indication that he is not caring, but that he is commanding. Maybe storms don't scare him because he's bigger than the storm. He's not scared. He's sovereign. Now, let's behold the measures of his sovereignty. Verse 39. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Now listen, obviously that verse, verse 39, is what the suffering are longing for. Calm the storm, O God. And God does indeed promise his followers that this will happen. He doesn't promise there will not be storms. He does promise the storms will cease. He doesn't promise there will be no weeping. He does promise that joy will come in the morning. Even death itself is a momentary affliction that will give way to eternal tranquility and peace. And it's at this point that we now move into the arena of faith. Are you going to rely upon your interpretation of the storm or are you going to trust Jesus' interpretation? You think this is the worst nightmare. He doesn't. You think it's irredeemable. He does not. You think it's inescapable. He does not. Whom will you believe? That's where Jesus takes us. Look at verse 40. Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? Faith. At some point, we must choose to walk the storm by faith, not by sight. At some point, we believe our Bible more than our circumstances. At some point, we must trust our God more than the breaking news. Now, this is not naive faith, by the way. He says, have you still no faith? This isn't the first time. You've been in the Gospel of Mark up to this point. So you know this is not the first time Jesus has demonstrated his faithfulness to them. He has given them every reason to believe that he is good and worthy to be trusted. And so it is for us. We forget the days of his faithfulness, don't we? We forget the provision he provides every passing moment. We forget that all of our previous trials we look back on and say, that was actually for my good. Thus, have you still no faith? Okay, so that makes for a uh, neat and tidy sermon. Storm calm, have faith, trust Jesus, let's sing and go home. Well, this is not the end of the passage. What if I told you the disciples now have a much bigger problem on their hands? something infinitely more dangerous than the storm? What if their fears are misplaced? That their fear of the storm, though understandable, is an irrational fear, and now they are forced to be face-to-face with what they ought to fear. That's what happens next. We've explored our irrational fears. Let's look now at rational fear. Final verse, 41. And they were filled with great fear. The Greek is extreme there. The ESV says great fear. I like the NIV, which says they were terrified. Now, why are they scared? I thought the storm was over. I thought the storm had been calm. But now they are struck with the reality of the true storm. Continue on. And said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The passage begins with the disciples fearing the storm and ends with them fearing the one who commands the storm. 
and they are right to do so. Their fears are now properly ordered. Who is this man? He commands the forces of nature and the forces of nature obey him. And we had the audacity to yell at him, to accuse him, to doubt him, to question his goodness, his power, his care. What have we done? One day during, during seminary, my uh, friends and I were taking a break and, and from studying, decided to head off to the zoo again. Now, like I said, before this, at this point, the whole thing had become pretty boring. And uh, so we decided to do something we'd never done. We went to the gorilla house and we tried to pick a fight with the gorillas. Um, now, we knew banging on the glass wouldn't work. They were used to that. So this is what we did. We got up right near the glass and we uh, stared down the alpha male gorilla. And we tried to look as big and mean as possible. And we weren't going to break eye contact or move until this gorilla did something gorilla-like. And so we started staring at him, and we could tell we were getting to him. He starts pacing back and forth and kind of looking at us out of the corner of his eye and so forth. And it turned into this power standoff uh, sort of thing. And we weren't backing down, especially with a glass wall between us. Well, all of a sudden, this docile, domesticated gorilla finally did what gorillas do. He charged at us, lowered his shoulder into the glass, and when that didn't work, he started pounding on the glass and roaring. Did you know gorillas roar? Gorillas roar like lions. I saw its teeth. It's terrifying. So this gorilla is literally trying to break the glass and tear us apart. I kid you not, families were running out the exit screaming. That's what's happened to the disciples in the boat. This domesticated Jesus that they had gotten used to has been uncaged before their eyes. The lion of Judah has roared at the storm, and the storm obeyed, and they realize they have insulted the lion in their midst. As echoes of Isaiah 6, doesn't it? The prophet encounters the holiness of God and was struck with heavenly terror, and all he knows to do is cry out, woe is me, what am I going to do? I'm undone. That's what's happened here. This act of power has unveiled Jesus. It has displayed Jesus in his unconstrained might and authority. And suddenly the disciples realize holiness is in our boat. And we just yelled at him. Verse 41 is essentially the disciples saying, we've got a bigger problem on our hands, a much bigger problem. We have insulted the God who commands the storm. And the text ends there. This haunting, lingering question of reverence and fear goes unanswered, and then the story is over. But it's not over is the point, right? Jesus relieved their fear of the storm. That's easy. Nothing to Jesus. Wind and waves, please. That's just a sentence from Jesus. But now they have a much bigger fear, and Jesus intends to relieve that as well. It's going to take more than a word, though. Much more. But whatever it takes, Jesus has come to calm the truest storm that we all deserve. You do realize what you deserve, don't you? The arrogance of humanity in our daily collective rebellion against our creator. And then a trial comes our way and we say, where is God? Or how dare you, God? No, how dare we? How dare we presume upon his kindness as if he owes us prosperity when we deserve calamity? 
If I think the storms of this life are scary, I have to face the storm of holiness that consumes all sinfulness. And yet our Jesus, our precious, benevolent, compassionate, patient, gracious, and on and on and on, I could go with the superlatives, Jesus is determined nonetheless to calm the storm of our proper fear. That is to say, when we do let the lion out of the cage, we discover him to be a lamb. They say, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? They don't understand the irony of those words, do they? He has come to rescue them from perishing, but it's much greater perishing than they knew. I want to fast forward to the Garden of Gethsemane, the opposite of a storm, a place of tranquility. Tranquility. Remember how I said that Jesus was asleep during the storm, not because he was indifferent, but because he didn't fear the storm? He's asleep because he does not fear what the disciples fear. Well, let me read the account of Gethsemane. Find a different Jesus here. And he went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful and overwhelmed even unto death. He sounds like the disciples in our passage. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He's pleading, I'm perishing. Is there any other way? He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. The one who sleeps in peace during the storm, it says, is greatly distressed and troubled in a garden, a place of peace and tranquility. Sleeps in the storm, distressed in a garden. What could possibly make the one who commands the winds and the waves to be so distressed and troubled, crying out to God? He's about to save his people from true perishing. Lord, do you not care that we are perishing? Oh, he cares. But he cares about the perishing we ought to care about. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish. And for us to not perish, Jesus must perish. He must drink down the cup that he prayed to be spared. He must drink down the cup of God's fury, swallow the wrath of God towards sinners like me. He is about to endure the world's true and greatest nightmare. And now listen to the next verse from Gethsemane. And he came back and found them sleeping. Oh, the irony. The disciples who screamed and cried at the sight of a little storm and yelled at a savior for sleeping, those same disciples are themselves asleep, completely indifferent to the truest storm. Friends, we have to ask if this is us. I want to ask you an incredibly personal and vulnerable question. What is your greatest fear? What is your worst nightmare? Chances are, your answer to that question is a stormy circumstance. That a storm would rise up in your life that threatens your comfort, your health, your children, your finances, your country, your future. Chances are your greatest fear is a circumstantial fear. 
Friends, these are improper fears rooted in improper worship. These are fears of losing our idols. What we ought to fear is losing our one true God. That's proper fear. Perishing forever apart from our God. Well, what I can offer you this morning as a minister of the crucified Savior is if you have trusted in him, your worst nightmare will never come true. I can't promise you the absence of circumstantial storms. I can't promise you money, comfort, pleasure, health. I have no promise for your lesser fears this morning. I have one and only one promise. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish. The true perishing. That's all I have for you. But that is enough. The tempest of his justice, the waves of his holiness have been silenced. When he said it is finished, he calmed the storm of God's fury. He calmed the greatest fear forevermore. And now we all have, now all we have is peace and tranquility with God forevermore. Bless his name. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. How can we not say thank you? You have calmed the storm of fury that we deserve. Not just with a word, by receiving the fury we deserve. Lord, would this give perspective to our lesser fears? Would this give perspective to difficult circumstances? May we be able to say it is well with my soul in every circumstance because it truly is well with our souls. Bless you, Jesus, the lion who has become the lamb. We bless you. We praise you. We thank you. And we pray in your name.